Um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, very warm welcome to all of those who are in PG20 and everyone who joins us um, online as well. We're delighted to welcome you. Um, this evening's lecturer, Hans Borsma, um, well known to many of us, uh, is the St. Benedict Service of Pride Professor of Aesthetical Theology at Neshota House in Wisconsin in the United States. Um, prior to Hunter's appointment at Neshota House, he was the J.I. Packer Professor of Theology at Regent College in Vancouver in Canada. His research is centered on sacramental theology, ecclesiology, um, and patristic exegesis of scriptures. His many books include Nouvelle Theologie and Sacramental Ontology, A Return to Mystery, a book that's been extremely important for my own work, Seeing God, the Beatific Vision in the Christian Tradition, Pierced by Love, Divine Reading with the Christian Tradition, and the intriguingly entitled Five Things Theologians Wish Biblical Scholars Knew. <laughs> Only five. A couple of my biblical scholar colleagues at the back there will soon write, will soon write to the repost five things biblical scholars wish theologians knew. Um, Hans was ordained to the Anglican priesthood in 2021, and we are delighted and honoured to have him as this year's Alan Richardson Fellow in Durham. More than anything else, you are a wonderful friend and a fabulous colleague and an inspiration to many of us. So thank you very much to Hans for being with us over these last weeks. He's going to speak to us this evening uh, on creation as love. Would you please welcome Hans for us? Thank you very much, Simon, for your very kind uh, comments. Uh, can you hear me in the back? Yeah. Um, there's actually a book by Scott McKnight entitled Five Things Biblical Scholars Wish Theologians Knew. So there is such a book. Um, I would first like to um, thank the Theology and Religion Department um, for inviting me to um, the Alan Richardson Fellowship this year. It's a genuine honor and joy to be here this term. And uh, I don't know if she's here or not, but um, I'm especially grateful to Jean Coverdale for all the work that she has done, both for my wife and for myself, in uh, making us at home here. Uh, very much appreciated. I'm also very grateful to the hospitality of um, many folks here, including many in the department, um, showing us around in the last, in the last couple of weeks. Um, I've gained a considerable number of pounds here, I think, uh, but that's very much worth the um, lovely conversations and the uh, great food, which I'm uh, very grateful. Uh, before getting into the talk, I would invite you to pray with me. Oh God, who art the light of the minds that know thee, the life of the souls that love thee, and the strength of the wills that serve thee, Help us so to know thee that we may truly love thee, and so to love thee that we may fully serve thee and preserve his perfect freedom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, tonight's talk is an abbreviated chapter of a book that I'm working on, tentatively titled um, Theophanizing Love. It's very much a work in progress. And so I would welcome your 
very frank interaction with me after the talk that would help me incorporate any needed changes in the final version. Um, the book will, at least that's what I'm planning to do, uh, will propose a metaphysic of love, which turns to Christian Neoplatonism, especially Dionysius and Maximus, for an articulation of the creator-creature relationship by speaking of creation as theophany, or better, theophanizing love. Um, just to sketch the context of this talk, um, in the first God, world, and the link in between. Rather, I think we should limit ourselves to two terms, namely God and creation. And creation of this view is simply God appearing in a different creaturely mode. In other words, there's no gap separating creator and creature, no journey to undertake, no space travel to embark upon. The world is kind of like an object we glance at in a mirror. What we see is, in a genuine sense, the object. But it exists in the mode of mere image or likeness, rather than as a really real three-dimensional object. Because it is a mere likeness or image, 
it is less real than the forms in the intelligible world, particulars in a sensible world. In short, this reading of Plato takes forms as models and assumes a separation or a gap between models and particulars. A better way of understanding Plato's forms is, I suggest, as paradigms, paradigmata, or exemplars. The paradigm approach regards only forms as really existing. They are the really real. Particulars do look like the really real forms, just not the way a copy looks like a model, but more the way that an image of my dog Penny in the mirror looks like the real Penny standing in front of it. Sure, Penny is the dog in the mirror, but she is not the really real Penny that I take for a walk in the morning. Penny's mirror image exists strictly by way of dependence upon the real dog. For as soon as she walks away from the mirror, her image disappears. In the paradigm approach then, particular sensible objects um, are appearances or manifestations of the forms in a different sensible mode. Indeed, their dependent mode of being marks them out not as independent beings or substances, but as relations, always dependent for their manifestation upon the intelligible forms. This reading of Plato takes forms as paradigms or exemplars and assumes that particulars are the appearances of forms in a lesser dependent mode. We do need to pick up on the radical claim, from a modern perspective, that is, of, a, of Plato's metaphysic. Reginald Allen explains the Platonic relationship between forms and particulars this way. He writes, they are not merely different types of things. They are types of things which differ in degrees of reality. For the one is wholly dependent upon the other, 
particulars have no independent ontological status. They are purely relational entities, entities which derive their whole character and existence from forms." Unquote. The paradigm approach implies that sensible objects do not exist separately or independently. They cannot be explained on their own terms, but they are not really real. Appearances are nothing apart from their relation to the forms. Indeed, the paradigm approach understands appearances not as substances that are shaped by form impressing itself upon matter, but rather as something like images cast forth by forms, keeping in mind, of course, that mirrors and images are just metaphors which inadequately articulate the relationships between forms and particulars. In a model approach, one might regard participation as the link between intelligible form and sensible object, like a journey space travel. But in the paradigm approach, participation is the dependent mode in which the object exists in relation to the form. If particulars are strictly relational entities, which is another way of saying the relationship is the way in which they exist, then this means that sensible things are their being mirrored by the intelligible form. In the paradigm approach, participation says something about the object itself, namely how it exists. So the participation is not a third distinct entity apart from the form and its particular. We needed this platonic digression, for it is crucial to how we understand the creator-creature relationship. In a model approach, which in the West culminated in 18th century deism, which radically separates creator and creature, God is treated as utterly separate from the created world such that we can ascribe the notion of substance or being to both in the same manner. Here the question inevitably comes up, how do we bridge the gap that now opens up between creator and creature, or in Platonic terms, between intelligible and sensible reality? The discovery of nature, as I sketch it in the chapter preceding this talk, assumes the separation or dualism of the model approach. Theologies that separate in Aristotelian fashion the substances or beings of God and of creatures have a high view of God's transcendence, but struggle to make sense of divine immanence. In a paradigm approach, the paradigm and its particulars are one and the same in the sense that Penny and her Im mirror image are the same God, but they exist in different modes. The paradigm as the really real Penny herself, and the particular as the less real, that is the dependent participatory mode of being, Penny's mirror image. Here, transcendence and immanence imply one another. On the one hand, Penny herself obviously transcends the mirror image, which exists in a deficient participatory mode. On the other hand, 
the mirror image really is Benny. Benny, we might say, is imminent in the mirror image. The main point then is this. In the paradigm approach, transcendence does not imply separation. And for that reason, it enables imminence in creation. Deists may uphold divine transcendence by viewing God as separate from the world. But Orthodox Christianity has typically maintained that transcendence and imminence go hand in hand. Creationist theophany assumes a paradigm approach. From my understanding, the creator-creature relationship has two rather than three terms. Theophany does require, indeed it does not require rather, indeed it precludes a journey bridging the distance between God and creature. Participation, the journey, is not a fair term in between creator and creature, but is simply the mode in which creatures exist. Only God, we might say, is a really real. But when he appears, takes on theophanic form, he assumes a creaturely shape or mode of being, shimmering forth an image, as it were. The notion that God renders himself present in creaturely mode will be unnerving to some. It may seem to imply a monistic or pantheist view of reality. It is not actually, for the transcendence that I just highlighted emphatically precludes a pantheist metaphysic. The argument that I hope to make throughout the book is that our Aristotelian proclivities make it difficult for us truly to embrace divine eminence. We see this already in St. Thomas Aquinas, who though he appealed to Dionysius a great deal and often used the language of participation, needlessly separated nature and the supernatural, creator and creature. Aquinas' adoption of a substance metaphysic made it difficult for him freely to adopt the kind of theophanic discourse that Dionysius and Maximus liberally used before him. My proposal, therefore, is that we replace an ontology of being with an ontology of love. The ultimate metaphysical principle is not being, esse, but love, caritas. To be sure, some will use the language of the good rather than of love, seeing as the former is pervasive both in scripture and in the Platonic tradition. Plato and Plotinus, as well as Dionysius, all speak of the good as the ultimate principle, as the various other theologians in the same era, beyond all other, other forms. If someone chooses the good instead of love for God's most appropriate name, I will not object, and at times I myself will also use these two interchangeably. Still, the name of love has distinct advantages. Most significantly, perhaps, love is central to Holy Scripture in a way that goodness is not. God is love, the first epistle of John famously tells us. Jesus combines love of God and of neighbor in response to the question as to what the great commandment of the law is. And love is the greatest of the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. St. Paul repeatedly links together. Love also has long played a role in the history of Trinitarian theology. 
most famously through Augustine's appropriations of lover, father, beloved, son, and love, spirit. A metaphysical love may turn to love as the parochoretic relations of father, son, and holy spirit. And finally, it is the spirit's presence, presence of love in creation that transfigures it on its deifying journey back into God. Though I think we should speak of symbol, creature, and symbolized creator as the only two terms in the relation, it is the spirit that does the symbolizing within rational creatures, modifying their mode of existence so that they participate more deeply in the life of the triune God. But why not go with being rather than with love or goodness as the ultimate metaphysical principle? That, after all, is what Thomas Aquinas did, knowingly and deliberately distancing himself from Neoplatonist metaphysics on this score. Aquinas argues that the name he who is, we est, is most properly applied to God, Odin. It is God's self-revelation in the theophany of the burning bush that gives us the most appropriate name for God. The angelic doctor offers three reasons in support for this position. First, qui est signifies not a certain form, but being itself, ipsum esse. Second, this name is the most general or universal of all names. For all other names are more particular, offering merely a mode of substance, or rather, a, a mere mode of substance or being, rather than indicating the very being of God itself. And finally, the name qui est indicates the timelessness of God. It signifies God in the present, which is fitting because past and future do not abide there. As a result, God is best named from his substance, substantia, or being, esse, says Thomas. This is all in um, uh, the Prima Pars question 13. As we read, Aquinas then apologetically reads, unapologetically reads God's self-revelation to Moses through the lens of his substance metaphysic. Now Aquinas does consider several alternatives. In particular, he discusses the name God, Theos, and queries whether it perhaps might be the most appropriate name of God. After all, this name signifies the nature of God. The name Theos derives as a coin from Theomai, to watch, to behold, designates God providentially watching over all things. From this activity of God, we designate his divine nature. This name, God, is incommunicable, insists Aquinas, with an appeal to Wisdom 14. Quote, it's 21 there, they gave the incommunicable name to wood and stone, name of God. So the name God applies to one only. It cannot be multiplied and therefore is incommunicable. We might think then, with God as the incommunicable name signifying the divine nature itself, it would be his most appropriate name. Aquinas does not agree. Admittedly, he comments the name God is the most suitable one to signify the object of God, 
since it signifies divine nature. But when it comes to divine existence, as in the name of quiesced, who is, he who is, is the best way of naming God. Aquinas works here with the distinction between essence or nature and existence or being. God most suitably designates the former, quiesced the latter. Aquinas does wonder whether he should perhaps follow Dionysius in treating the good, bonum, as the most appropriate name for God. And he also wonders whether perhaps it would be problematic for God's most appropriate name, he who is, to have no relation to creatures. But Aquinas does not waver. God's existence, essay, precedes his goodness. And it is simply not the case that every name of God must imply a relation to creatures. In each of his responses, therefore, Aquinas makes a key metaphysical move. It is substance, not relationship, that is the ultimate metaphysical principle. Whatever other name we might use for God, for example, the good or love, it falls short of the very substance of God. At the end of the day, goodness and love simply modify substance or being. By contrast, Christian Platonism has typically posited a metaphysic of love or of goodness. If God is not simply one among many beings, then the language of substance, essay, being, cannot properly do justice to him. God is always more than we can capture in words. So we must recognize that the God of our worship is beyond the category of existence and being. The Eastern essence energies distinction recognizes, rightly I think, that the language of being must be complemented by that of beyond being, hukarusias. The Christian Platonist tradition, therefore, has often looked to the good or to love as speaking of the divine essence, while the discourse of being has to do with the energies of God. Both Plato and Plotinus adopted what Samuel Korp has recently called an agathological metaphysic, insisting on goodness, tagathon, as the ultimate metaphysical principle. In book six of the Republic, Plato briefly alludes to the good as beyond all, and as the begetting principle of this worldly things, which are analogous, it says, analogon to the good. Plotinus considerably expanded and deepened Plato's notion of the good. Plotinus kept its key features. The good was utterly beyond being, ineffable, and hence utterly simple, so simple that it was beyond number. And even the term simplicity could not do it justice. Despite treating the good in such a radically apophatic manner, Plotinus saw it as unthinking in its generosity, sharing its goodness with intellect, with nous, and from there with soul, psuche, and with sensible things. How is this emanation from the good possible if it is utterly beyond all being? Plotinus speaks of intellect as beings or forms around that one, periata, around that one as it, as it abides, by way of illustration, he famously presents four analogies, sun, 
heat, snow, and fragrance. All intellectual beings, according to Plotinus, give off or produce from the activity or energy of their power beings around them, periata. As archetypes, they produce these images of themselves through their external activity. Sun radiates light, fire produces heat, snow shares its cold, fragrance diffuses its smell. In each analogy, there's a similarity between the archetype and the image it produces. Same is the case, according to Plotinus, with the one's generation of intellect, as well as with intellect's generation of soul. Soul, he writes, is an expression and activity of intellect, just as intellect is of him. Plotinus distinguishes sun and light, fire and heat, snow and cold, fragrance and smell. In each case, the former is the internal energy and the latter the external energy. Plotinus's famous doctrine of double activity. The good's internal activity safeguards its self-sufficient identity. The external energy allows it to relate to the next level down in the hierarchy. Through its external activity, the good makes itself present to intellect, so that the good's external energy is identical to intellect's internal energy. And in turn, through its external activity, intellect makes itself present to soul, and so constitutes soul's internal energy. Plotinus clearly articulates a paradigm approach rather than a model approach. The good makes itself present to the next level, even though it does so in a different mode. Just as the sun manifests itself in its light, fire in its heat, snow in its cold, and fragrance in its smell, so the good manifests itself in intellect. For Plotinus, Participation is not a third item between metatsu, the various levels of the hierarchy. Intellect and soul, for instance, are different from each other merely in that intellect is the form, while soul is the recipient. We should not then picture participation as a third term, third item rather, something that would serve as a link between the higher and lower levels of the hierarchy. Plotinus therefore understood the good much like Plato thought of the demiurge, without grudge, phonos, and wanting all things to resemble himself as much as possible. The good one is a father who generates intellect, or a king who more, more truly than, than Zeus is father of the gods. After explaining that sun, fire, snow, and fragrance all give off from their own being, Plotinus continues quoting, all things, once they are perfect, generate, beget, genau. For Plotinus, the notion that the good is self-diffusive, bonum diffusivum sui, is central. This we may say, writes Plotinus, this is the first act of generation. The one, perfect because it seeks nothing, has nothing and needs nothing, 
overflows, as it were, and its superabundance, superpleras, makes something other than itself. The emanation imagery central is not that the good decides to share of itself after weighing a number of options. When the good wills goodness, and it does will goodness, it acts in line with what it is. Goodness, because of its superabundant character, simply overflows. The 12th century discovery of nature would lead to a major shift in metaphysics that for many rendered this Platonian approach obsolete. The discovery of Aristotle meant that substance metaphysics would replace the relational ontology of the Platonic tradition. For the newly developing scholastic theology that now developed, both God and creatures were primarily constituted as existing essay, though of course they both might still be modified by law. As a result, Aquinas regarded God primarily as subsisting, subsistence being itself, ipsum essay subsistence. While goodness and love turned out to be relations that modified being and as such were subordinate to it. Seems to me that the earlier view of Christian Platonism had a richer understanding of reality. Relations are primary and constitute beings. Goodness or love, therefore, is what gives reality shape. Love is who God is. Love is what gives to creatures also their identity. But is it possible for goodness or love to serve as God's most suitable name? Can Christian Neoplatonists name their highest principle? This is a burning question, since Christian Neoplatonism modifies substance metaphysics in two ways. As I just indicated, it inverts Aquinas' order. For Aquinas, goodness modifies being, Whereas in Christian Platonism, relationality rather than substance constitutes reality. And a second modification follows from this. Goodness or love is incomprehensible, ineffable, precisely because it is primary or beyond being. We need a second philosophical excursus to grasp the logic of this second claim. In his poem on nature, Parmenides, 5th century BC, describes two opposite ways, the way of truth and the way of seeming. The one that is, and that it cannot not be, is the path of persuasion, for it attends upon truth. I'm quoting him here. The other, that it is not, and that it needs not, and that it needs must not be, that I point out to you to be a path wholly unlearnable. For you do not know what is not, for that is not feasible, nor could you point it out. For Parmenides, being and truth coincide, while non-being is unlearnable, cannot be known. He memorably articulates this basic conviction in his famous aphorism to think. Nine and to be, ain't I, is the same. 
Parmenides acknowledges nothing but being. We can think nothing but being. And so everything else is mere illusion. The two paths, therefore, of truth and of seeming, are strictly demarcated. Parmenides opts decisively for the way of truth over against the way of seeming. No one can travel over the latter since it is not. By contrast, Parmenides is confident of our ability to know things that are. As Eric Pearl puts it, not only are being and intelligibility coextensive, but intelligibility is the very meaning of being. Being that which is can mean only that which is given to thought. But since thought cannot extend to anything else, anything else is mere empty noise or nothing. Being means and can only mean that which is intelligible. Thinking is wholly and solely the apprehension of being. And being is wholly and solely that which is given to thought. So far, Eric Parmenides, by identifying thinking and being, offered a thoroughgoing rejection of all sophistry and nihilism. Only being can be thought, and he recommended that we abandon the illusory and non-accessible way of seeming. For Parmenides, being was the only thing that is real. He thought of it as perfect and complete, and for that reason, also as bounded and limited. According to him, hard necessity keeps being in the bonds of the limit that holds it fast on every side, wherefore it is not permitted to what is to be infinite, for it is in need of nothing. Well, if it were infinite, it would stand in need of everything. For Parmenides to be infinite was to be unformed and hence imperfect. To be finite was to be formed and perfect. Morris Clark has shown that Parmenides' linking of infinity with imperfection and affinity with perfection was in line with correct thinking among early Greek philosophers. The same understanding of finitude and infinitude persisted through the pre Socratics. Pythagoreans, and even Plato, Plato therefore connected limit with forms, being, perfection, while categorizing, categorizing unlimited with matter, non-being, imperfection. As a result, he thought of forms as having finite being, which is precisely what gives them their perfection and intelligibility. The reason, presumably, is that he associated infinity with matter, multiplicity, and imperfection. Plotinus, in a radical innovation, proposed that the good and the one beyond intellect, beyond noose, and hence beyond being and form, was infinite. And as such, perfect. A move that would have profound consequences for Christian tradition. Because Plotinus held on to Parmenides' strict identification of thinking and being, the good as infinite and beyond being moved beyond intelligibility in Plotinus' thought, as well as in the Christian tradition following him. 
For Neoplatonists, the good would become ineffable because it had a place beyond Parmenides' being and thinking. With these philosophical developments in mind, we cannot escape the question, is it possible to name the good or love? Naming depends upon intelligibility, which has to do with being. But if the name I want to propose for God is beyond being, is it not also beyond intelligibility, and hence beyond naming? Does it make sense to try and name love? How do we justify our use of this name, seeing that it is a name above all names? It is true that Plotinus was a radically apophatic philosopher. Nothing we positively say but the one properly describes him. Yet, as we've already seen, Plotinus did use words to speak about the one. And he did not hesitate to use positive language in doing so. The good has a will of sorts. The good is like a father who generates. The good is unstinting, generous. The good is active, characterized by energeia. Indeed, the very use of the term good as an alternative to the one makes clear that Plotinus went beyond simply negating positive language. A.H. Armstrong speaks of these positive articulations of the one as the negative theology of positive transcendence. Negative theology of positive transcendence. The good is always greater than whatever we may come up with, either in thought or in words. The good is superior to all of that. For Plotinus, the worshipful attitude of piety demands that we think of the good as beyond whatever goodness we can imagine. As Armstrong puts it, quote, it may be spoken of as beyond being, and all the terms of the negative theology at its most emphatic may be applied to it, but it will be clear that this is only because its reality cannot be adequately expressed in terms of the reality in terms of realities that we know. Phrases are preferred which make it clear that the transcendent reality is more than what is denied of it, more than what is denied of it, unquote. The good is always in excess of whatever great goodness we imagine. The good, therefore, is not simply nothingness. It is such excess that it transcends human thought, positive transcendence in Armstrong's words. Christian theologians experience Plotinus's allure, especially, I suspect, because of this negative theology of positive transcendence. Plotinus was a mystical theologian of sorts, wanted to lead his readers back toward the one or the good. The opening sentence of Eniac 5.1, on the three primary levels of reality, is crucially important for understanding Plotinus's system. Whatever is it, then, asks Plotinus, that has made souls oblivious of their father God, and although their portions from there and altogether his be ignorant of both themselves and him, Plotinus's aim was religious, even mystical in character. His aim was to draw his readers upward and inward so that they might overcome their forgetfulness. 
mysticism, if it is to fulfill its anagogical role, must use words, even though they obviously fall short. The most platonically inclined theologians of Christian tradition, theologians such as Gregory of Nyssa, Dionysius, Maximus, Bonaventure, Cusanus, all use the language of the Trinity, the Logos, and of the immense love of God when they spoke of the God beyond being. Gregory of Nyssa interprets each of Moses' three theophanies as manifestations of Christ. Burning bush manifested to Moses the virgin birth and the incarnation. The cloud that he entered on Mount Sinai was the inner sanctuary of divine knowledge, the tabernacle not made with hands, which is Christ, according to um, Gregory, which is Christ, uncreated in his pre-existence. And Nissen also interpreted the rock from which Moses saw God's back as Christ. Gregory gave Christ the metaphysical place that Plotinus had assigned to the good. Christ for Nissen was not only beautiful, but he writes also the very essence of the beautiful. Dionysius famously opens his mystical theology with a prayer to the God beyond perception and understanding. I'm quoting his prayer here. O Trinity, beyond being, beyond divinity, beyond goodness, and guide of Christians in divine wisdom, direct us to the mystical summits more than unknown and beyond light. There, the simple, absolved, and unchanged mysteries of theology lie hidden in the darkness beyond light of the hidden mystical silence. There, in the greatest darkness, that beyond all that, that beyond all that is most evident, exceedingly illuminates the sightless intellects. There, in the holy, imperceptible and invisible, that beyond all that is most evident, fills the overflowing sightless intellects with the glories beyond all beauty. We really need the opening line here to see what it is that Dionysius is doing. He addresses the Trinity as beyond being, beyond divinity, and beyond goodness. And this hyperphatic discourse, the beyond language, continues to reverberate throughout the prayer. Dionysius follows in Plotinus' footsteps in using positive language to speak about the good. Dionysius, however, is much more specific in his negative theology of positive transcendence than Plotinus had been. He refuses to leave behind Trinitarian discourse and applies it straightforwardly to the beyond being God. Maxim's confessor similarly consistently equates the beyond being God with the Trinity, with the Logos. One example will suffice to make the point. Commenting on the Transfiguration, Maximus explains that it taught the disciples that the radiance shining from the Lord's face, quote, was a symbol of his divinity, which transcends intellect, sensation, being, and knowledge, unquote. So that from the knowledge of his incarnation, they were led to the glory of his divinity by means of theological negation, he writes. 
that extols him as being beyond all human comprehension. The transfiguration led the disciples through an apophatic route to an ineffable logos. Is the logos, the word, cataphatically revealed in the divine scriptures, who Maximus describes as beyond being, unknowable, beyond speech. Christian mysticism is grounded in an apophaticism of excess. That is to say, although the beyond being God, the divine essence, is not captured in any way by human language, not even that of goodness or love, we dare not let go of the positive language of revelation, the Trinitarian and Christological discourse, and everything it entails, not even with regard to the God beyond being, the language of love here is indispensable, so much so that a Christian metaphysic must be a metaphysic of love. That is what Christian Neoplatonists try to articulate throughout the centuries. And that is ultimately why they consistently refuse to leave the language of Trinity and Lagos behind. We must speak of the beyond being God as Trinity and as Lagos because it is the love of the triune God as manifested in Christ that gives us being and that draws us back into God. God is always more than words can express, but he is always self-diffusing love. It's not at all my intention to disregard or do away with the notion of being. A metaphysical love includes the notion of being, but aims to give it its proper subordinate role. Dionysius the Areopagite discusses being along with life and wisdom, immediately after dealing with goodness, light, beauty, and yearning. Whereas he treats the latter four terms as the center of a circle, the equivalent of Plotinus's wand. Being, life, and wisdom are like the radii of the circle, moving out from the center. For Dionysius, the good reaches out to creatures by granting them a share in his being. gives that to all creatures, and to some animals, life, to human beings and angels, wisdom. Same holds for Maximus. His metaphysic of love in no way precludes the notion of being. He too uses the imagery of a circle. In a sense, the logos as one is beyond all being. And beings do not participate in it in any way. Nonetheless, Maximus goes on when we think of the one as present in its processions, we may and should start thinking of participation. After all, the one gathers everything back to itself. Quote, as if to an all-powerful point of origin, or the center of a circle, pre-containing the beginnings of the radii originating from it. Unquote. We too are drawn into the circle, for we too, insists Maximus, are portions of God. Maximus, therefore, speaks of the circle's radii as participated beings, beings in which creatures participate. 
which are placed around God, peri autum. As such, being, life, wisdom are among the divine energies. Each of these energies explains maxims as the logos of being, the principle of being, and as such is a work of God. We must acknowledge that being leads us to love. We should avoid in any way separating the two. Essence and energies do not occupy separate components. Rather, as I tried to argue, love pervades everything, for it gives of itself and calls back to itself. But God's theophany in Christ also shows us that love is infinite in its horizons and that we cannot plumb its astonishing depths. This is important for the sake of our worship and praise. We can worship only a God who is always beyond us. Only in such worship do we properly safeguard the creator-creature distinction. Love and being are not mutually exclusive, even if ontologically the former precedes the latter. By prioritizing the name of love or goodness, Christian Platonism acknowledges that the being of God arises out of his love. Such prioritizing is a confession that God is beyond being and intelligibility. It is an acknowledgement that we never fully grasp the always receding horizon of love. In other words, the essence of God remains ever beyond us, as he generally stooped down to us in theophanic appearance. Thank you.